about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way, it might be really good. Wow. Sucks, a movie by movie and television series by television series hurtled through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This time we're taking a look at Luke Cage, first seen in September 2016, when, if you wanted to look clever in front of your friends, you could have watched Better Things, Legends of Chamberlain Heights, or Jagger Eaton's Mega Life instead. I'm Tim Worthington, and we'll be finding out what I made of Luke Cage shortly. Meanwhile, joining us to give his thoughts on Luke Cage is writer Jim Sangster. Jim, where can people find you? In my kitchen, Tim. I've been in lockdown for three months thanks to this bloody pandemic. But at least I've learned to cut my own hair. And I'm on about five pub quizzes a week now, virtually through Zoom. So I'm doing all right. Thank you very much. Also, the, the horror of you usually say, where can we find you? And, you know, and what are you up to? Well, last time I spoke to you, I was saying that I was expecting the Doctor Who season 14 Blu-ray to be released. Uh, so it's been released. And I found out that I'm on three of the documentaries, which, which were recorded over the space of a decade. So if you play them in the right order, you can watch me getting steadily older and older before your eyes. <laughs> Yay, me! <laughs> okay, so before we go any further, Jim, what happens in Luke Cage? So this is the third of the Netflix Marvel series. It's our third reluctant-powered being, and it's the first to have a largely non-white cast. So we've got Luke Cage, who's a quiet, mild-mannered hulk of a man who holds down a few low-paid jobs to help him stay off the grid. And he slowly gets drawn into battles with local gangsters, and particularly with nightclub owner Cornell Stokes and he's got help from a police detective called Misty Knight who's the coolest woman on the block and Claire Temple who's the the night nurse as the comic books have her and she's already appeared in a couple of the other shows uh, and that's it really and it's also very very cool it certainly is but Jim how much did you know about Luke Cage before you saw the show like a lot of these sort of second tier and third tier characters I knew them because I, I read Spider-Man and I read the Hulk and I, I loved the Defenders and some of these characters were popping in and out of them you'd see them advertising other comics at the time the only issue i ever owned was the first issue which was given away with the action figures so when they do the marvel legends action figures and there was the luke cage 1970s one with the yellow shirt and it had the origin story as a free comic book i read that cover to cover i loved it and i loved the parallels between you've got captain america who you know, considering he's supposed to be poor is still a, a white guy you know and this is a proper 
reversal of fortune and that you, you've got him kind of conned into becoming a superhero you've got Luke Cage as a prisoner who escapes from prison and decides he's going to do some good and kick some ass at the same time watching the series uh, I got to the end of the first series before I started researching it and that's when I discovered just how much of the series is faithful to the comic books the characters are from there I was blown away by that yeah it really really is close to it. I think it's one of the closest apart from the well I mean they have modified Luke Cage's costume in the comics over the years but we barely get a nod to the original one that you mentioned the yellow shirt he is seen wearing a yellow shirt in a flashback but that original costume would not fly now i don't think it would super fly yeah well yes it it is literally super fly but yeah his character exactly mirrors how he was in the comics because i assumed for a long time before i actually saw any of the actual comic strips because i'd only seen the covers of things and adverts that he was you know an angry character you know he had a lot of rage resentment kind of like almost like a a hulk figure but a normal person but he's actually deeply intelligent and his intelligence and kind of his philosophical streak probably wouldn't have emerged had he not had the superpowers but the real key thing is his friends in the comics are people like obviously reed richards who's not been in the films yet Danny Rand, Iron Fist, who's a billionaire industrialist, you know, obviously reads a genius, and also he dates and later marries Jessica Jones, who is hardly setting a low intellectual bar. So his power was his mind as much as his abilities. He's a great strategist. He thinks before he does anything. And this is exactly what the show's founded on, I think. It's that wonderful melding of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X in a way, and that you've got someone who looks very super fly. He looks very much like a 70s black exploitation character he is but when they're using the kind of philosophy of an educated man like almost like a self-educated man like Malcolm X and you know the the deep philosophies and the fact that he's, tr- he's trying to find a way of living apart from everybody else you know and, and he doesn't really want to be a part of all those big superhero groups but he often finds himself getting drawn into them yeah and there's a couple of key things that really I think mark this out not just from the other Netflix series and the ABC series but from the films as well in that it's one of the ones that has the smallest world in it because if you compare it to the way Black Panther is largely about global politics and Luke Cage is about the politics of the next three blocks basically it's about who controls in inverted commas legitimate business in his immediate surroundings and you know the effect on the community and so on there's very little awareness of a wider world out there but also it's got a real mishmash of styles which i think we'll come back to when we talk about the showrunner but i mean we mentioned the black exploitation angle but within this there's also elements of spike lee films a kind of daisy age rap videos of the wire that's quite a big influence it was very much down to chio hidari koka who's the showrunner used to be a music journalist and as we'll discuss in a minute he used that to really sort of shape and frame the series but he did say one of his approaches was given he called it a hip-hop western that hip-hop's all about sampling and he thought to that end i'll just draw from all of the best examples of black cinema and black tv and make them into a whole where it's very much set in the present but it references all these things i think that gives it a very strange almost you can't really say surreal edge because it's very realistic but it is kind of shoehorned into its own little universe really again like the music that it keeps referencing as well and also i'm I'm painfully aware we are two white guys explaining black culture to an audience of largely white guys but obviously we're basically viewing these these whole films through the prism of a british love of american culture in all its forms so i'm not feeling too shady about that but obviously when we were growing up and we had live action superhero stuff apart from superman the main stuff was on tv we had spider-man we had the incredible hulk and 
And they kind of looked like every other TV show. They looked like everything that was recorded in a, a studio in, in L.A. You know, the same lighting, the same flatness to them. And then you get Batman, which is all very moody. And off the back of that, you get Dick Tracy. And the big push there was where they're saying, oh, we've, we're using primary colours. We're using them to make the, the whole thing look real, but also look hyper real like a comic book. So they're doing that kind of trick in the lighting in all these Netflix shows. They're beautifully lit, especially when in Jessica Jones, when you've got the, the purple to hint about what's about to happen next. With Luke Cage, it's yellow. It's flashes of yellow. You've got very dark colours. You've got a very sort of um, uh, golden brown palette. But then these flashes of yellow, which remind you of the 70s comic book. Yeah, because the music plays a really important part in, not just as an element of the show itself, but in the actual shaping of it. Because again, Shio Adari Coker, he said he modelled both series on albums in the with the idea that people were going to binge watch them would be like the same way you would listen to a hip-hop album. Because, you know, you've got all these little tracks that wouldn't make sense out of context. You know, all the skits that go on between and so on, and the kind of freestyle versions of earlier tracks and so on he modelled it along those lines to the extent in in season one all the episode titles are named after gangstar song titles and the thing in series two it's Pete Rock and CL Smooth but the idea was to get that kind of structure like an album which I will admit in both cases does dip very slightly in the middle like some hip hop albums can (laughs) but also the interaction just with real world music because one of the key points of season one is that Method Man because Luke Cage's (laughs) popularity grows within Harlem within the community Method Man does a single about him and he actually manages to be in the show unlike his uh, his colleague from the Wu-Tang Clan who's only on a deleted scene folks yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's amazing the way they get that I mean I always feel a bit odd when you get a drama when they got real life people coming into it it was strange when they did that on the West Wing and uh, Studio 60 on the one hand there's a reason for it they've got the club and it's a bit weird when you've got Faith Evans doing a, a spot when there's a massive painting of her, her late husband upstairs in the in Cornell's office and then you get the Delphonics and you're thinking is this a Quentin Tarantino thing this is really weird and then in the last episode of series one when you get Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings and that's when I really lost it I absolutely love Sharon Jones and because of the way I watched the series it happened to be coincidentally the week that she died was when yeah. I, I saw the final episode so that was a, a, especially emotional just with the idea of them being albums that difficult second album is kind of where it falls apart a bit, isn't it? You know, the first one is so beautiful and so well done, and the second one begins well, ends well, in the middle, in a bit. Yeah, apparently his model for that was he repeatedly listened to a tribe called Quest to the Low End Theory, their second album, to get the right shape for it. And it might be a controversial point of view, but if you ask me, that's not the best tribe called Quest album to listen to. But did you know who was originally going to do that scene instead of Sharon Jones? No. It was particularly potentially going to be Prince. And the reason I have a swear jar in the club was that Prince had to swear jar everywhere he performed. And that's the beautiful thing of this. Imagine if they got Prince, because that would really take that whole story into ridiculous levels, because <laughs> why the hell are they playing there? It's not... <laughs> it's not the Apollo. <laughs> it's, it's some shady backstreet club. But for some reason, they get the Delphonics. <laughs> it's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Man, it is what it is. Understand a man if you ain't live what he lived. Coaches in the crib and got no food up in the bridge. Put the crime running rampant and it's screwing up the kids. Sway a man, what kind of paradise is this? I just want my 40 acres and some cash on the wrist. But these snakes is trying to gather in the pit where you get the cotton now, plucking ashes off the clip. Off the rip, now a challenger exists. Any bulletproof, shoot the kind of caliber is this. Got thugs in the store with the barrel on your lips, saying nifty out the job before you pay you with the grip, Lord. Who the call when no one obeys the law? And there ain't no iron man that can come and save the song. Power to the people and loot. 
laws and the cops got it wrong, we don't think cage involved. Look, dog, a hero never had one. Already took Malcolm and Martin, this is the last one. I beg your pardon, somebody pulling a fast one. Now we got a hero for hiring, he a black one. And bullet hole hoodies in the fashion. We in Hall of Paradise, Delicat done. That I'm about to trade the mic for a mad gun. Give up my life for trade Vaughn to have one. Cheer, cause this is bulletproof love. And you already know what a bulletproof does. So you can take it from a bulletproof dog. The hood got his back, dog, bulletproof love. So many great things about series one i mean one of the things is the fight sequences apparently they came up with the phrase smack foo to make it <laughs> like a like a fist fight version of a 70s martial arts movie which i think really works and later on in defenders you get those brilliant fight scenes where they've all got the fight styles from their individual shows in one big battle daredevil and iron fist and jessica jones are all sort of whizzing around the luke cage just standing there just thumping people as they come past i love the fact that he often uses their momentum to just get them out the way so yeah you'd almost expect iron fist to be doing something like that but it's it's luke cage who's the one who's someone runs at him and he kind of grabs them manipulates them twist them over his head and throws them effortlessly so it's it's their own force that causes their downfall and there are quite a lot of crossovers not just with the other netflix series because i mean you get things like trish walker makes a cameo in season one turk barrett shows up as well a couple of the other characters and we'll come on to comes into season two in a minute but there's also one thing i should say is mahershala rally as cottonmouth is fantastic as a villain and obviously he is only in season one but he's now being cast as blade i think that is fantastic he's going to be a brilliant blade i do hope that they just address the fact that it's the same bloke playing two different characters you know you could say something like oh my mad cousin thought he could take over harlem you know and just leave it at that he's an interesting villain because he's not quite evil he's cultured he his main ambition in life is to play jazz piano rather than take over harlem and he has an enmity with luke cage at one point tries to stop him by getting hold of some bullets made from Chitauri metal, which obviously were left over from... The incident. Avengers Assemble, yeah. So there is a level of crossover, even within this little self-contained universe. And the fact that Alfred Woodard is another one who, I mean, she's going backwards because she was in, is it Civil War? Yes, yeah. I mean, it's funny when you see these actors and you've seen them in loads of other things, Alfred Woodard in particular, so I know a lot of people would know her from Star Trek First Contact. They might remember her from being a series regular and sent elsewhere for a number of years. And you mentioned Spike Lee. I first saw her in Crooklyn, which is a beautiful heartbreaking film and she is magnificent in that so when I first started watching that with a friend and I got excited because she was in it and he's gone oh yeah her off Star Trek and I was like no her from Spike Lee <laughs> thank you and I love the way that she she plays everybody I love the fact that she plays the politician's game in every direction she's playing her brother she's playing without saying who it is her lover in series two her daughter you know she is the most slippery villain and when you consider that she's playing another one of those characters from the comic books and you look her up and you go Oh, Black Mariah. Yeah, they've really cast up for this one, haven't they? They've made a very sophisticated, I suppose, this massive, overweight, tracksuit-wearing thug. Actually, a little bit of a tangential thing. So, obviously, Spike Lee famously directed the movie Do the Right Thing. So, the music, the, the soundtrack of the show, is a collaboration between an L.A. composer called Adrian Young and Ali Shahid Muhammad from A Tribe Called Quest. And they bring together a lot of flavours from jazz, from soul, from hip-hop, basically the, the entire spectrum of black popular music of the 20th and 21st century. But there's one extra thing, and I, I don't know if it's just me imagining it, but you know the theme tune? We've got that pounding beat at the beginning, the opening theme tune this is. And then it goes into the 
the melody. And as I started watching it, I started humming it, and then I, I realised I'd heard it before. And I'm sure it's the the chorus, the musical chorus from Redhead Kingpin and the FBI's Do the Right Thing. I think you could be right, actually. <laughs> <laughs> when I was watching it, and I, I just found myself going, Do the Right Thing. And it, it fits perfectly. You know, it, it's, yeah. um, I'm pretty sure, because they must have known each other. They must have been around the same time. A Tribe Called Quest, Redhead Kingpin, um, I'm, I'm convinced. It's my one pet theory on this. And there's so much else to say about Series 1 before we have to move on to series two because there are other things like I know you would have appreciated this Luke in his flashback scenes is in Seagate Prison which is obviously the setting of All Hail the King the one shot which as we know you adore that best thing ever (laughs) there's other things like I mean they mention events with Kingpin and the Punisher from Daredevil it actually fits around season two of Daredevil via Claire who flits between the two you know things will happen like she turns up I think in Daredevil with an injury she's stained in Luke Cage and when you look at those sites where they say what order to watch, you know, which films and TV shows in. There's a lot of zigzagging between those two seasons. It's weird as well, because if you watch series one of Luke Cage, you've got Misty taking a wound to the upper arm, and it's fine. And then if you haven't watched The Defenders, beginning of series two begins, and she's lost an arm, and you're thinking, wow, that escalated quickly. But it's a completely separate, unrelated incident from The Defenders. And there's also, it does tie in with series one of Cloak and Dagger very, very vaguely as well. But I seem to be losing people when they talk about Cloak and Dagger, because it is on Disney Plus now, so everyone please go and watch it, because it is really good. So any- Anyway, yeah, by the way, <laughs> no, I've not watched it and I don't think I'm going to, I'll be totally honest. But you mentioned that flashback episode of on Series 1 and I really love the fact that they, they they shoehorn in the tiara and they shoehorn in the bracelets and then they finally get the yellow blouse and he just looks ridiculous. And, <laughs> and the fact that he, he comments and goes, oh, I look like a fool. He looks crazy like a fool because he looks a little bit like Bobby Farrell from Boney M. And it just, it just becomes, there's nothing more 70s than that look. There really isn't. <laughs> there are quite a few characters where they've toned down the costumes. You know, Scarlet Witch in particular, Hawkeye. But I think it was really needed here because Mike Coulter's performance, it needs that. I mean, he does have yellow lined hoodies on which is a detail not many people notice, but he really needed that low-key look, I think, because he plays low-key so well. And there's nothing more 70s than that, which, of course, they realised in the comic books way, way later. And that's when the colour palette, you know, he gets rid of the big afro, he becomes shaven-headed, he becomes a lot more in line with the sort of Nations of Islam type. But in the comic books, it's all about greys. They get this colour palette of greys, and blacks so he becomes very kind of monochrome in a way but occasionally you get these little flashes of yellow coming in just to remind us and it's kind of what they do with the tv show so he's always trying to get like a gray hoodie that then gets shot up and then sometimes you know it might have a bit of a flash of light on it well the second season i mean i still liked it but i thought it was a massive step down after season one because i think the big problem is in season one you've got cottonmouth who as i've established is a really good villain season two Bushmaster, he's essentially just a thug who wants to wrest control from somebody else. And that's all there is to it. It's a bit like the way you get the change from in The Wire from Stringer Bell, who, again, is an intelligent, cultured, not necessarily a villain because he wants to, quote, make sense of the drug trade. You know, he wants it to operate with kind of without anyone getting harmed. It's his ultimate goal. You know, he's mm. a very complex character. Then it moves on to Marlowe, who just wants power. And that's it. He doesn't even really care for the money other than the power that it confers on him. But the thing is, 
Whereas in The Wire, you've got that changeover impact on lots of different leading characters. And his arrival affects everyone's lives in a different way. With this, you've just got a thug having an impact on Luke Cage, and that's it. And it doesn't really take off for me. I know what you mean. I mean, it's, it's weird as well. When you, when you lose Cornell in Series 1... And you get Stryker, and he's not as good. That's probably not very nice to say, but I don't think he's as good an actor. He's nowhere near as good. And then you get your third big villain. And I don't know, maybe it's just because we, we traditionally, whenever we hear a Jamaican accent in British TV, it tends to be played for laughs. It tends to be a funny character. It tends to be a comedy character. So when you hear them talking about Yardies, and you're thinking, wow, we're, we're going to go there? And you get everyone doing their best Jamaican accent or Jafakan maybe. And I find it quite distracting. Some of them are really good at it and really convincing and some of them less so. Speaking of less so, I'm wondering (laughs) what you made of some characters that turn up in season two from another series because Danny and Colleen from Iron Fist turn up. As far as I'm concerned, it's a massive improvement on their own series. They're both great in it. And I can't understand why they're so good in Luke Cage and they've got a great dynamic with him. And it's a dynamic that didn't really come across in Iron Fist itself. It's a shame because I would have loved a Heroes for Hire show. You know, and obviously in the comic books, Danny and Luke are improbable buddies. But my theory on this is that with Daredevil and Jessica Jones and Luke Cage, you've got poor people looking after other poor people. So it's not that the gangsters are doing what the gangsters do. It's that their activities are affecting your common garden people in the street. With Iron Fist, it's a billionaire who's complaining because they stole his billions. And it's very difficult to empathise, even though he does a good job and it's very sweet the way he's very childlike. And that's another thing where Colleen really shines head and shoulders above Danny in his own show. So when you see them coming into Luke's show and they're guest stars, and it's just like, oh, they're two friends and they've got their own little battles. And it's nice to see them because you're not being reminded, boo-hoo, they stole my millions. Well, that brings me around to an interesting question, which is there are hints being dropped already that, because slowly, one by one, apparently there's already a range of Netflix characters to appear in Infinity War and Endgame if they were needed, but ultimately decided not to. But one by one, those Netflix licenses are expiring and there are very convincing rumours fueled by some of the cast that they are going to make kind of lower key appearances in the next couple of actual films. There's one very convincing rumour doing the rounds which as far as I'm concerned is probably true. Where could you see Luke Cage fitting in? See the thing is again he was in the Avengers and when every single Marvel comic book brand became part of the the Civil War he had his own little story which is him standing his ground not being bullied into signing the, the Registration Act and protecting Jessica Jones. So I don't know because he w- he would work well as part of an ensemble. He's a really good character. Mike Coulter's a great actor but I, of all of them, he's the one who I don't think fits. And then the best thing about the Defenders as an idea was they're all people who wouldn't really work well in a Spider-Man movie or in, in the Avengers because they're all a bit too dark especially the Punisher. But for some reason I think I would love to see another Defenders movie where maybe you've got the Punisher in it as well maybe you've got a few of the other uh, side characters but just make it a lot less like the one they made (laughs) 
<laughs> Frankly, you know, I know you're going to be going on to the Defenders, but the fact that the Defenders has the same basic plot as Iron Fist, only with a much more famous actress. Well, I've got a theory, and given that I've already put my Blade will be in the next Doctor Strange film theory out there on record, I'm going to say this one now. There's a Shang-Chi film coming up. Shang-Chi is the one sort of street-level vigilante that Netflix didn't get the rights to because they've been planning a film all along. Shang-Chi is going to need some of the characters alongside him. I'm reckoning maybe Luke and Danny, but we'll see. If it's got Turk in it as well, because <laughs> I, I love the way Turk just, you know, he, he walks out of Daredevil because he's getting beaten up on a regular basis, and then he, he comes into Luke Cage, and in his first episode, he's like, you guys are crazy, I'm going back home. <laughs> <laughs> I know he pops back again and again, but I love that. I love that the, there are some villains who are who are so minor they get away with it. Right, well, there's just one thing left for me to ask. Jim, if you had impenetrable skin and super strength, what would you use it for? I'd probably do the same as Luke. I'd probably think, I don't want anyone to notice. I'd probably just... <laughs> I mean, I'd save money on skin cream. <laughs> I'd save a hell of a lot of money on uh, uh, Savlon, but... Because uh, I've, <laughs> I've got eczema. So... Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That that would be the extent of my superhero life. It would be like, well, there's shares in Savlon dipping. Okay, well, I mean, we've had throwing Boris Johnson into an infinite time loop. We've had smacking Jeremy Renner with a hammer. I think curing eczema might be the most abstract one yet. Jim, thank you, and Excelsior. Make mine marvel, Tim. If you've enjoyed this... Don't forget you can find more editions of It's Good Except It Sucks and plenty more besides, including details of my book Can't Help Thinking About Me, at timworthington.org.